this. My name is Andy Moore. Thank you for being here. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined by Dr. Scott Nelson. Hello, sir. Hello, dude. Scott is actually the president of the board of Let's Fix This at this in this year. So it's true. Thanks for doing that. Bailey Perkins cannot be with us today. She's taking a vacation day and I'm I'm jealous. I'll be honest. That sounds lovely. I don't know what she's doing today, but she is not here and, and didn't go to work. So I'm hope hopefully she's I don't know, napping or somewhere not thinking about coronavirus. That's right. As if that's possible. Do you think anyone in America, I guess someone out there is not thinking about it right this moment, but it feels like it plagues our minds all the time. It does, man. It does. It's really, it's really terrible and not going away anytime soon. Yeah. I had a, I had a meeting today, an actual in-person meeting, which was, like good and anxiety provoking at the same time. Everyone showed up with their masks and we did the thing and all that. And I was like, it's so good to see you in person. But at the same time, like I can feel myself like kind of holding my breath a little bit and like just there's this like meta thought that's overarching everything else. And our conversation, I think, mimicked that, that we, you know, we would talk about city council and we would talk about the county commissioners and we talk about schools and higher ed just kind of weaving through all the topics but we just kept coming back to like covid 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 did you have you gotten to this point i only recently got to this point but it's happened to me a couple times i was watching an episode of veep last night and of course this is from like 2012 and there's uh, an episode where one of the aides is like sick and he's getting everybody else sick and he's sitting he's sitting across uh the desk from Julia Louise Dreyfus is chief of staff and he like sneezes and in my head I was like where's your mask dude why did you have a mask you're in somebody's office why aren't you guys wearing masks I was like oh because this was this was the pre-times yeah a sneeze was just that's right a B- sneeze was just a sneeze BC before COVID I it 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 is weird I mean one of the people I was with today sneezed and it was a very tiny sneeze and you can kind of tell like something had been tickling her nose and she looked horrified at the fact. And we both kind of looked at her like, was that it? Like, was that the moment I got infected? Um, and, you know, everyone had masks and all that. But it was still like a weird, terrifying moment. I had, in fact, I had a mask on the other day. I was in the parking lot at Lowe's. And I had to sneeze. And, like, you look around and you think, it, should I take my mask off to sneeze? No. And you're like, no, no, that's the whole point of yes. wearing it, right? It's literally what it's for. And it, by the same token, if I, if someone took it off, you would, you would theoretically sneeze into your elbow, which is a, an ad hoc mask, right? Like the, the vampire sneeze is an arm yeah. mask. I had a patient ask me that they need to sneeze their was Like, do I, so I just sneeze in my ass? No, not in your ass. Do I just sneeze in my mask? And I said, yes. Yes, you do. And, and in fact, it's, it's actually still helpful to go ahead and, cause the masks are like, they're semi permeable, right? So right. it's, it's helpful to actually go ahead and still cover, cover your mouth and nose and whatnot with your elbow or what have you. Right. Um, so like you should do that too, but also with the mask on, but that's like the whole, that's the whole point. Right. You know, I'm interested to see what, what pop culture is going to do like with the pandemic. Like at what point, like, so there are some, 
there are some shows that like never deal with major life things like like so friends right friends uh like was in the middle of their run when 9-11 happened mm-hmm. um you know they took a hiatus when when it happened but then they came back and like the intro changed and it didn't show the towers anymore but like they never they never ever addressed 9-11 like on the show like 9-11 didn't happen in the universe that the show right. takes place in and so i wonder for shows that are on now and I, I'll be honest, I, I don't even know like which ones it would be because a lot of my favorite shows just ended. Um, but like, when, 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 and how will they address the pandemic? Like, are we going to see shows that have episodes that take place where people are wearing masks? Are there, are there, is there going to be a thing that like this happened in the real world, but it didn't happen? in the universe in which our favorite like movies and television shows take place. Yeah. That's a really good point. And I mean, not obviously not every show like had nine 11 happen, even if they were set in New York, like you said. Um, and I've seen that a number of shows have like delayed production for this fall or this summer right. because of COVID. And so, yeah, like in theory, if these shows are mimicking real life, they would, <laughs> they would then like, have everyone be masked all the time and it would weave into the storylines. I would assume at least like medical shows like ER is that's that's still on, isn't it? Aren't they still making new <laughs> ER was canceled in two thousand and eight, I think was their last season. Really? Yeah. Not ER. Oh, I'm thinking of Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy is still on. Oh yeah, Grey, Grey I want to say Grey's Anatomy is in season like seventeen or something just that's absurd. Nuts. Someone will have to wear a mask and then have paddles, right? And that's the whole <laughs> that's right. That's what will... the Grey's Anatomy fix to every medical problem is defibrillation. That's what you do. You yes. shock no matter what's wrong, you shock them. That's right. Uh and and friend of the pod, Effie Craven, has been watching Grey's Anatomy and and she texted Scott and I the other day about it and and no joke, there was a scene with a deer where there were five surgeons and a defibrillator that rescued a deer. And <laughs> she made the point that, like, she, that deer better hope those surgeons are in network. Otherwise, they're going to get a hefty bill. <laughs> hefty bill. Deer's going to go to deer bankruptcy court for his uh, emergency services that were provided out of network. Yeah. Just nuts. Well, let's, uh, since we talked about COVID already, and we usually start with, with that. Scott, how are we doing in our COVID quest? Uh, very, very bad indeed. Uh, no, it's getting, it seems like it's getting better. I mean, like the trend, so the trend line um, is now for seven day, the seven day rolling average, I want to say is at its lowest point since July the 20th. Um, coincidentally, or perhaps not coincidentally, that seems to coincide with when some of the major metros around the state implemented mandatory masking. You're starting to see a a significant drop in daily case reports today. It was up a little bit higher. Uh, it was, uh, it was 794, I believe, um, here in, in Oklahoma, um, which is up, I think, a little bit from yesterday, but still down significantly, you know, from a thousand that we were seeing a week to 10 days ago. So that's an improvement for sure. We have had several school districts. Uh, we've had several school districts open back up. Um, Saw yesterday, Oklahoma City Public Schools, they made it one day before there was a COVID exposure at school facilities. Um, I saw more. Moore has uh, confirmed today that a school, a child apparently went to school knowingly. Um, parent, more public schools has informed parents that a student attended the first day of in-person classes after testing positive for COVID-19. Oh, come on. So that happened in Moore. 
Um, there was, let me find it here. There's another school district around the country that I want to say, uh, Carly Putnam, who is a policy aficionado from the Oklahoma Policy Institute. Um, she had a tweet. She's like, what a different 17 hours could make. There's a school district that opened yesterday and they, this is uh, Kanawa, Kanawa Public Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great day here at Kanawa Public Schools. That was yesterday, today. We're closing at noon today. Uh, there's been a COVID exposure. We're closing at noon. Buses running at noon. We're sending everyone home. So, uh, yeah, and we've heard those stories. Kingston had like a food service worker that tested positive. So they had notified like all 900 families at the school. And, and I think this is what's going to happen, right? As schools, I mean, every week more districts are opening. And almost immediately in every district, at least one school or the entire district is having to close in response. And Scott, if you you remember back in March when we first started talking about this, there was this idea that like we were going to end up with rolling closures, right? Right. right. But in, when we talked about it in those terms, we talked about like full full close down, like community right. level city shutdown stuff, like we had in the beginning. And and now what we're seeing is individual businesses and school districts, and the the difference i think and what what strikes me is more difficult is that as a as a parent of children who are scheduled to start school next friday is that trying to plan when when part of your life has to go to school and part of your life has to go to work and and then what happens when that closes right like then then you've got to scramble for childcare or adjust your own schedule and it makes it really difficult for the economy to to proceed at a predictable pace, right? Like it's hard yeah. for businesses to plan. It's hard, whether it's a big office business, whether it's a retail place. Like if, when you have people that are unreliably there, students, employees, whatever, it makes it really hard for things to continue. Yeah. So, and yeah, just to our, our local, one of our local NPR affiliates, KGOU Don Norman, they've got a uh, list, a running list of all of the schools where state impact has found announcements or news reports of active case discoveries. So we've got active coronavirus cases in Bennington Public Schools, Kingston Public Schools, McAllister, uh, Westward Lower Elementary School, which is in Colbert, uh, Hartstorn, uh, Shawnee, Newcastle, Marietta. Bishop Kelly, uh, which is Catholic private school in Tulsa, 33 Broken Arrow staff members have tested positive, so they're delaying their start. Uh, Middell has four staff members who tested positive. Boswell Public Schools is online after two teachers test positive. Dixon Public Schools um, tested has some positive tests for Townsend, Yukon, Kanawha, and then Westmore High School. So, wow. um, and it's been like, I mean, it's been less than a week. Um, yeah, and is, I mean, not all districts are open yet. Right, and this is a this you know there's a it's a great line by Ian Malcolm, Doctor Ian Malcolm from uh, Jurassic Park, one of the seminal films of my childhood, uh, where they they visit the park and they're they're seeing the dinosaurs, and Doctor Malcolm says, "John, you were so worried about whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think about whether or not you should." Yeah, um, and that is, I feel like, how we got here. We shut down, we flattened the curve, and we we did really really well. But we were so invested in opening, you know, quote, opening the economy as quickly as possible from, I think, a legitimate concern of wanting to minimize the economic fallout, which is which is a real concern. Right. The Like the economy. Sure. Yeah. Like that's like that's not a like that's not a non issue. But it seems like we were 
we were preoccupied with wanting to do it as fast as possible and wanting to be for various reasons, wanting to be able to say that we were the first in the country or one of the first in the country um, to quote, reopen our economy. And so what happened is as cases were peaking again, we're in the position of, well, now we have to open schools, right? Like rather than opening schools, when we had daily case counts at less than a hundred and a you know, state positive test uh, results at one or 2%, we opened schools with daily case counts at a thousand and positive test results of seven or 8%. And this is what, like, this is what happens, right? So, right. Um, it's it's uh, unfortunate. I you know Oklahoma City Public Schools they are online for a minimum I think of the first nine weeks right right yeah um, and then possibly even longer depending on what the situation is. I I think what you're going to see is that the vast majority of the kids are going to be online for for sure for the full the, the fall semester maybe maybe after that. Now one thing that one thing that will be interesting. You know a lot of people were hopeful that as we got into the summer months that the virus would kind of you know tend to tend to level out or or decrease as we see that happens with flu obviously that did not happen hmm. and everybody is predicting that fall is going to be particularly awful and that certainly may be the case but one thing that may help us here in oklahoma in the next few months is if as we get into september if if we have a decent and ideally a long fall that may be beneficial because it means that people can go outside Right, sure. Like it's miserable. Like I don't want to be outside today, right? Everybody wants to be inside, mm-hmm. and everybody wants to be inside with their air conditioning systems running full blast. Right. Like I don't want to go sit on a patio and have dinner right now, right? Like it's freaking ninety. My my parents came by. My parents were in the area last night. They said, "Do you want to?" As we do now, do you want to come out and like chat in the yard yeah. for a minute before yeah. we before we drive a cone? I said, "Sure." At eight thirty, I was standing in my front yard dripping. <laughs> and my only physical exertion was lifting my wine glass to my lips. Right. right? And I was dripping with sweat at 8.30. Okay. Yeah. So like if we can get past that and get to where people can – where we can do a lot more outside. We're not having so many people cooped up inside all the time. We may. I'm not predicting. But I think it's at least possible that you can see that that further help us kind of curb the spread a little bit and maybe be in a better place heading in to like the the, the core winter months. Yeah. Man, who knows? So kind of in summary then of of the COVID update, it looks like uh, overall it's decreasing, although again, not super steeply, right? Like the um, the trend line, the seven-day average trend line is going down and not going as quickly as we'd like. Uh, somebody the other day also had a post, a tweet, I believe, that showed that Cases in metro areas, well, cases in areas that have mask mandates are declining much more sharply. Yeah. And so we, and so, you know, most of those districts you mentioned happen to be the ones that are open, but those are the districts that are in rural areas. And so if those rural areas are also seeing increases, uh, there was an article you were reading earlier about Boise City, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they had, um, they had thought that they were one of the, like, they didn't have any, they didn't have any uh, cases there, mm-hmm. um, and they thought like we've we've done it. We've missed the Rona has passed over us. We're we're doing fine. But now they had a teachers meeting, and now there's an outbreak. Right, and you know this because is this is one why, person has it. Right, they're in the room. Yep. and I you know I've ranted I, at least twice, <laughs> who knows how many times about this idea that oh well if there are not if there's no known active cases in your area then you don't have to wear masks and this shows why that's very misguided. 
the way that you stay at no active cases right. is by wearing masks. Right. Right. It's, it's true if there's no cases, but if you don't know that there's no cases, right? Which like if you don't often, know there's a case. Yes. Which is often the case. Which is the case that you don't know the case is in fact often the case. Right. And I've made this parallel before, right? But uh, when it comes to like sexually transmitted infections, I, you know, when I was working in the public health field, you just tell everyone like wear barrier protection because you don't know, right? Like you can't look at someone and necessarily tell that they have a sexually transmitted disease. In fact, they might not know either. And so you should protect yourself. Also quite common. Right. Yes. To not know that you have a sexually transmitted disease. Right. Right. We all just know about like the gross parts of the health textbook, right? Of yeah. Discharge and smell and those things. But that is not always the case. Like by that, by that time, the person is aware, usually for various reasons, and they've had it for a long time. Not always, though. I mean, right, there's like HPV. This is a, like HPV is a classic oh, example sure. of yeah, an, yeah. St- an STD that is one, an STI, excuse me, uh, that is super, HPV is super, super common and often causes no symptoms, particularly in men. Um, and 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 I fight this battle. I shouldn't say fight this battle. I have this discussion with parents all the time who don't want to vaccinate their 11-year-olds against HPV. And they're like, why are you vaccinating my 11-year-old against a sexually transmitted infection? I'm like, because I'm assuming your 11-year-old hasn't had sex yet. And I would like to in- I would right. like to inoculate them before they do. That's right. right? The time but, vaccinating against HPV is not when they're 25 and they've had four sexual partners. Like, right. if they don't right. have it yet, great. But, like, ideally, we would have got them beforehand. Right. The, the point of a vaccine is to prevent the infection, not to treat the infection. Yes. All right, well, let's uh, pivot away from COVID a bit. I wanted to talk about higher ed for a moment because I had an interesting conversation with a couple of different faculty members from a couple of different universities this week, and both of them kind of shared the same frustration, and that's that universities across the country are struggling with how to justify their value proposition, right? We all know that universities provide degrees, and presumably provide education as well. Um, but I think the conversation about athletics has helped highlight this, that right now universities are trying to justify why they can charge students the full price when students don't have access to all the things, right? It's like, well, you can't go to the lab or the library or that kind of stuff. And if you're not going to live there, why do I pay the same amount? And and it feels like most universities don't have a, a good answer to this. And I think the answer is right there. It should be that the the price that students pay is not just for the piece of paper that's the degree, although I think that's what we all commonly associate with college. But if, if a university is doing a good job at recruiting faculty, the price that you pay reflects the access to top tier faculty, right? Like the best and brightest minds in their field and and arguably the networking, right? Both with students and with your faculty members. And so you would think that like, I don't know, uh, Ivy League school like Harvard, right? That costs a bajillion dollars a year. You go there because the faculty there are better in some qualitative way than the faculty at Midwest South University. It's just some fictitious, small, liberal arts college, right? But every university of every size is struggling with this. And it. And I want to get your opinion as someone who has, you know, attended higher education facilities and see 
what you think about the value of higher ed and how it translates into the COVID times? I mean, that's, that's a great question. And it, and it, there's a lot of different ways you could go with it, I think. Right. I mean, I think you're right. I think that um, if a university is doing what it should, then, then the value should come from the experience you have with, with professors. Yes. But also with your classmates. Right. I mean, like, I think, you know, um, I think that what's the best way to put this? You know, I think if a university is doing a good job at, at, you know, kind of selecting its students, what you would hope is that part of the education you get at a university is not just from the professors, but it's also from the other learners, right? Like hopefully you're being pushed and challenged and learning from different ideas and perspectives and different points of view that come from, again, hopefully being surrounded by people that are coming from a diverse set of backgrounds and experiences and perspectives and things that maybe allow you to read the same essay and take away two different, two entirely different points from it, right? Like, yeah, but um, you can still get that with an online environment. Uh, 100%, you, you, you can for sure. And that's why I think that, you know, maybe some universities feel like they're justified in charging the same because if you have you know if you're at a small private liberal arts a small private liberal arts liberal arts school and you're in a freshman seminar i mean i so i went to i went to two universities i went to trinity university in san antonio texas which is which is a small private liberal arts school and then i went to ou and at trinity i had to take a freshman seminar and there was like maybe 18 people in that class i mean I get on Zoom board meetings now that have way more than 18 people and and there's good discussion. And so I think you can have like a good, vigorous online discussion with a class like that um, and still get a lot of value from it. Now, I mean, does that justify universities charging full tuition? I don't. I don't know. I don't think there's any justification for charging room and board when you can't live there. Like that's well, right? Yeah. You know I now. Mean- I think the university's position has to be like, look, there is overhead that we pay on those buildings, whether they're occupied or not. And like that money has to come from somewhere. Like that's not the student's problem, but it's a reality of that university if they want to continue to exist. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, does, that, does that make sense at all? Like, yeah. And I, I think the issue is, is not, I think we all agree universities provide value. They provide education and the, I think the beef that these faculty members had with the situation, and I think it's well-founded, it has more to do with messaging around that, right? Like, and it, it struck me that, you know, when you think about, let's say, the Instagram feeds that you see for virtually any university, what are those feeds full of? Photos of attractive students, right? Like, maybe a beautiful campus, and like, here's all the beautiful people you can come be around, and all of this. And if that is not an option right now, like you are not offering that you are only uh, offering the, the education side of that. Why aren't universities? Well, I won't say why aren't, I believe universities would be smart to like fill their social media feeds, their marketing materials right now. Of Like you should come to this, like you should come to OU rather than O triple C because we offer these faculty like you want to attend if you got to attend online 
I think that you know, consumers are like, if I have to go online, I'm going to go to the cheapest online school because it's that's right. the the deal, right? Right. But universities, in trying to differentiate themselves from one another, is that they should be saying, you got to go online anyway. You should come to our school because we have the best faculty. Like, you're going to get a better education. Sure. And I just don't think that that gets emphasized. And this is real interesting that that so many schools are like, ah, uh, well, we got to open because that's what we offer. And it's like, do you not offer excellent faculty and excellent educations? Because why aren't you touting that rather than being like, we've got football? I mean, so I would say two things. I would say, obviously, I think faculty make a huge difference. I will say that all the faculty, not all, the faculty that had the most influence on my college career were faculty members that I had later, right? Like that they're faculty members that I had, I had declared my major, I was at my concentration, like you're, you know, sure. you're kind of, you're kind of narrowed down the departments that you're in. So you're working with like a certain group of people in kind of all your classes. Like, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Like, you know, does it, I mean, I, does it matter who teaches freshman composition? In my opinion, yes, it does. Right. Like, like, I mean, um, I think class size matters more than, than probably anything for, for, for some of the entry level coursework. Yeah. Um, but I tend to think that like star faculty are very important, but I think that they tend to be more important at, you know, kind of the, the latter half of your college career and then graduate school more than in the, first half like is that is that fair yeah i think that's fair yeah and so that may be one reason why like if you're trying to push for people to come like enroll at my school right like it doesn't make sense if you're ou to push like oh come enroll at our school because we have this amazing professor and she's the world's leading researcher in this certain sect of like microbiology yeah, if you're one of the like eight people that take her capstone microbiology course, that's like a huge deal for you, right? Right, right. If you're, if you're one of the 500 people that enter OU every year and says that they're going to like major in biology because they want to be a doctor or a dentist or whatever, and then go on to do something else, then that doesn't matter very much at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. And even with my, um, my MBA, like I had some faculty that were outstanding. <laughs> And some that were um, adequate, right? Like they were fine. So it, it obviously is not everybody. But just from a marketing, public relations aspect, um, it seems like a glaring omission or oversight or just I maybe it's just another example of an industry that has struggled to grapple with the far reaching ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they need a little help figuring that out. Okay, so... Let's talk for a second, Scott, because you and I are both big fans of 538, um, Nate Silver's outfit over there. Then they do a lot of election-related stuff. We're big nerds. We are. And in fact, I'm wearing my 538 <laughs> politics uh, t-shirt right now. So they released their election forecast this week. And this is a big deal to at least you and I. And Maybe some of our listeners as well. And while we don't normally talk about national stuff, this is, I think in my world, like this is a a big benchmark deal. 538 caught a lot of flack after the 2016 election because people said, you know, you got it wrong. And they were very clear of like, you misunderstood what a percentage chance means. And so... You did not study probability. Right, right. 
So as of today, uh, today is we're recording this on August 14th, the 538 forecast has Biden um, with a 73 out of 100 chance of winning. That gives Trump a 27 out of 100 chance of winning. Uh, and that is based on 40,000 simulations that their computer system runs. And then they kind of plot those, the highest chance. They have some really excellent graphics this year. If you go to 538.com, all spelled out, not the numbers, but the, the letters. Um, it's pretty interesting. And I just saw Nate tweet a few minutes ago that he he wants to acknowledge that while the forecast gives Trump a roughly 27% chance at winning, which is not insignificant, right? Like, if there's a lottery that said you have a 1 in 4 chance of winning, you would definitely play that lottery. So it's not insignificant chance that he could win. But the uncertainty runs both ways. And so it also means that um, he has roughly a 33% chance of suffering the worst electoral loss since Carter or something. Hoover. Since Hoover. Woof. Uh, yeah, that's right. Even worse than Carter. And so that is a really big deal. Yeah, and when you look at the model, it's really, so they <clears throat> a little bit about the model for people that don't that don't follow five thirty eight. They um, they update it multiple times a day every time they get new polling data, and then when it's updated with new information, it runs forty thousand, roughly forty thousand simulations, and comes up with a distribution, um, a probabilistic distribution of outcomes. Um, and in the most recent data set um, for this most recent set of forty thousand simulations, um, you know, it shows that. Uh, Vice President Biden wins 73% of the time with the President Trump winning 27% of the time. But the mode, so the most frequent value in the data set, right, the outcome that happens most often um, is Biden with like 420-ish electoral votes, um, which would be like pretty substantial. That's a lot. Um, so um, it, it it's interesting, though, because... Um, there's several models, you know, Real Clear Politics has a model, um, Crystal Ball has a model. There's several different models, and most of them are giving um, um, most of them are giving um, President Trump much less than a 27% chance. Um, they're they're feeling much more bullish uh, about um, the, the vice president. Um, and 538's argument is like, look. There's a ton of uncertainty. There's a, a lot of uncertainty from the coronavirus. There's a lot of uncertainty given that we're four months out from an election. Um, and so they, they're actually a lot more bearish um, on the vice president and, and a lot more bullish on, on President Trump. Um, but if you were, so they are forecasting what they think is going to happen four months from now. They would say, though, that if you change the model, if you change the inputs to say that the election is at four months from now, that the model, you tell the model the election is tomorrow, the vice president has like a 95% chance of winning or something like that. So um, it's, a, it's a, if you guys are not, if you're listening to us, you probably are frequent in 538, but uh, if you don't, you should. Um, um, it's, I, I think it's about the best data driven um, political analysis out there with a close second. Um, the New York times upshot at the New York times does a fantastic job as well. Nick Cohn runs a great, runs a great, great organization over there. Also new this year with the election forecast is the, I'm going to say that again, because I heard you sniffle real loud. Sorry. Uh, also new this year with the 538 forecast is 5e Fox, a little uh, character that 
is in all the pictures, which is uh, I saw. I haven't decided uh, how I feel about him yet. I know I saw a, a tweet that had the Car Fox or the Carfax Fox plus Clippy, the paperclip from Microsoft Word equals Five E Fox, and I think that is a very <laughs> accurate yes. su- summary of what it looks like. Uh, also, Paul Money's at Oklahoma Watch, you know, said, "Oh, maybe we need something," and uh, because Five E Fox has its own Twitter account too, apparently. So, listeners, if you have suggestions on a mascot for Oklahoma Watch and what they could use, uh, I I suggest not a bison nor a scissor tail flycatcher, but I'm open to other ideas. Uh, and so, if you will suggest it, I will draw it or get someone else to draw it. Andy Ryan suggested the Oklahoma Wallaby or the Oklahoma Walrus in, in exchange for Oklahoma Watch. So, it's not, not terrible, but... Um, wallaby, yeah. I'm picturing oh, an Oklahoma wallaby. I actually held a wallaby at a at a kid's birthday party about ten years ago. One of the extreme animals people were there, and they had a wallaby. It was very exciting. I don't really know what to say about that. <laughs> so, bef- uh, as we kind of move on and start to start to wrap up here, um, Five Thirty Eight also has a great project. Um, this is new. This is the first time they've ever done this. Um, you can find this on their website. They've also got it on Twitter, and it's how to vote in the twenty twenty election. It's a great resource for anyone who's unsure about um, where and how to vote. So, you know, obviously, we're going to be chock full of information and details for you here in Oklahoma about where you can go if there's polling places closed when to submit your ballots. But if you want a one-stop shop for any state in the country, if you've got relatives that aren't sure what the, where they're going to vote, if you want to know like what's happening in Florida, if you're, if you're just curious what states across the country are doing, you can go to projects.538.com slash how to vote 2020. Uh, you can find it on their, on their main site. There's a link to it. Again, great graphics as always, and a lot of great information about where and how to vote, how the registration deadlines, how absentee or mail-in ballots have to be submitted all kinds of good stuff. So um, it's one of those deals that, you know, you see those things where you're like, man, that's a great idea. I wish I had thought of that and had the time to implement it. If I'd thought about it, that's how I feel about this. It's like, I should have, I should have done this if I had a free, you know, six hours a day. Right. Right. So let's do like a lightning round of other interesting and important things that have happened in the last week uh we'll start with monday i'll go on this one the group people not politicians which i also run uh refiled our ballot initiative petition to create an independent redistricting commission yes this is our third time to file it because we filed it last october then we had to rewrite the gist and then there was covid and so now we refiled it if you want more information and i think you should please go to people not not directly affiliated with Let's Fix This, but it is a separate organization kind of doing the work uh, of something that is important to electoral reform. So that happened on Monday. Yesterday, Michael Rogers, who is the Secretary of State, was also the Secretary of Education. I don't even know if I knew we had a secretary, a cabinet secretary of education. And he's also the governor's, quote, chief policy negotiator, which I basically means his liaison to the legislature and Rogers resigned from two of those three roles. He resigned as education secretary and policy negotiator liaison. So he retains his position as secretary of state. 
and I this is interesting to me, Scott, because this is not not an elected position. These are all appointed by the governor. I I don't know if the governor was aware of this was coming, but you know, the, one could see a situation where the governor is blindsided and then is pissed that his guy resigned from two of the three things he asked him to do and then replaces him in that third position. Yeah. And there have been some high profile resignations from the governor's office recently. Um, you know, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is a trend. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know. We don't, I don't have a, I don't have a secret mole inside the governor's office. I wish it did. Um, if I, if I did, I would tell you what they said, but I don't know. The, you know sometimes we're, you know, governors did spout halfway ish through an administration. It's not uncommon to see um, some, some staff shakeups in at this level of government. You know, a lot of these positions are, you know, a lot of these are folks that that were making significantly more money in the private sector before they came to work in public service. A lot of them are folks that don't have a lot of experience in public service and and may get frustrated with that. Um, so there's you can see multiple reasons why, and, and it's just and especially in the middle of a pandemic and an economic collapse, it's exhausting. I mean, it's just exhausting. So you can see why people might choose to choose to bow out, but I do think it's uh, it's it's clear, or I should say, it's not clear what what the like kind of underlying causes with some of these some of these folks that are that are leaving the administration yeah i would i would i would echo i think it's it is somewhat to be expected um and then the folks that are coming in to fill some of these roles uh so brian bingman who's a former pro tem of the senate uh, is coming in as the chief policy advisor and last week we talked about the governor's chief of staff michael junk had resigned and yesterday, they also announced a replacement for him. Um, the new chief of staff's name is Bond Payne. His name really is Bond. Um, and as Trace Savage points out on on Twitter, uh, Mr. Payne's handle is Porkchop Payne. And so he's Trace said he's uh, most excited to think that his nickname might be Porkchop around the Capitol and on Twitter, which I think is... You know, everyone else has like very kind of um, dry like Twitter handles, and the fact that this guy comes in with pork chop pain is uh, is kind of rad. Maybe he's a big fan of barbecue. That would be exciting. <laughs> what else happened this week? I think there was some there was some pretty major news on Tuesday. I think right. Uh, is that the county board of county commissioners or the? <laughs> no, that's when uh, Vice President Biden picked it, announced his running mate that he had picked. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> picked Senator Kamala Harris uh, to be his running mate on the national ticket. So now we have a, a full ticket on the left, a full ticket on the right, and we are full steam towards the general election. We've got the Dem convention coming up this weekend and next week, and the Republican convention coming up the week following that. Uh, it's it's going to be a wild four months, lots of uncertainty about how the election is going to be conducted. There seem to be some shenanigans happening at the post office. We'll have to talk about that another time. But a lot, a lot happening nationally for sure for us to keep our eye on. Um, yesterday we had a very, very rowdy uh, board budget board meeting for the the budget board for the Oklahoma for Oklahoma County, um, and a very rowdy county commissioners meeting today. I, I will say yesterday's meeting, I, I understand characterizing as rowdy, but when I watched the video, it was less rowdy than the tweets I saw about it led me to believe. All right, that's fair. That's fair. It was it was it was the part that was weird then like there were some notable comments right and banter but 
the actual meeting was like any other board meeting. It was very boring. Like, okay, what's next? You know, item four, item five. Uh, but then it was punctuated by, yeah, some like very interesting debates. So the meeting only lasted about 30 minutes. The videos on YouTube um, from their official Oklahoma County feed. And the end result was that the, the budget board voted to basically take a huge chunk of the federal CARES Act money and just give it to the jail um, rather than give it out to organizations or individuals or other government, uh, even other county programs that might need it. And Andy, uh, when you say a huge chunk, you mean like 98%. Yeah, it was like $40 million. Um, and the what was interesting, you know, like we had uh, Commissioner Carrie Bloomert voted against it. Sheriff P.D. Taylor did too. And he then later kind of came back and said, I just want to clarify and like highlight that I voted no on that. And I assume everyone who voted no is not going to go to prison. Uh, and <laughs> because there is a perhaps a, a non-zero chance that the misuse of those federal funds is illegal in some way and could put the county at risk, I guess. I don't, I don't, I'm not an attorney. I don't know. And it hasn't been decided, right? This is like a recommendation yeah. of the, yeah, this of is the right budget board to go, to go to the, the, the board of County commissioners, which will vote on it next week. It's so essentially what's the argument that's being made here um, by the jail trust. Um, and this was, uh, I think Sue Ann, Ar- Sue Ann Arnall was making this case yesterday at the meeting. What has happened is that there have been a number of inmates that have tested positive for coronavirus. Um, there are a number of inmates that are exposed to coronavirus, either from those other inmates or from other people that work in and out of the jail. When there's an exposure or a positive test, right, those people all have to be quarantined. So they have to be separated from the rest of the prison population, which takes resources, right? The other thing that's happening is that they're not allowed to go to court. So there are all of these inmates that are supposed to be heard in in the various courts around the city, and they can't go to court because they're in quarantine for either either having coronavirus or being exposed to coronavirus. And so the problem is like building on itself, like the jail is overcrowded already, and it's getting more overcrowded because of all the backup that they're having to do while they isolate these people. And the jail trust is making the case that this has become a dangerous situation. They don't have the resources to test people as as many tests as they need to run. They don't have the resources to isolate people. They don't have the resources to do all the things that they need to do to mitigate this, which I understand. I think is accurate. They probably don't, right? And the jails, the jails underfunded and, and overcrowded as it is. Um, and so the county has something 46-ish, I think, million dollars, 44, $46 million um, mm-hmm. that is uh, from the CARES Act that's supposed to be used for like coronavirus relief. And they're opting to, well, the, the budget board voted yesterday, which includes the county commissioners themselves, opted to uh, – up to two, I recommend that like 42 million, I think, of this sum, 42 or 43 million of these funds goes to the jail trust. And then like, um, like 3 million of the remainder, whatever's left, like $3 million goes to like uh, an eviction mitigation program. And then what that, but it's like, I mean, like the, like 98% of the money would go to the jail under this plan. What's interesting to me is a couple of things. So one, 36 of the $42 million would go to the jail's general operating fund, right? Like it it wouldn't go to like a special account that's dedicated for coronavirus. It would go to like the GR fund, essentially the operating fund that the jail uses. So 
I'm again, not a lawyer, but I wonder if you could do that when that is like used for general operations and not specifically for coronavirus relief, number one. Number two, it's just another example. It's one of these things that I rant about on the show all the time and it's so frustrating. One of the commissioners, um, Commissioner Kevin Calvey, former state representative Kevin Calvey, was he just in the House or was he ever a senator? He's just in the House. Just in the House? Yeah. Um, you know, Commissioner Calvey was making the point that, like, I mean, it just, you know, he, he thought we, sh- you know, one, like, how do we decide what, bis- what businesses this money is going to go to? How do we decide what nonprofits it goes to? How do we just, dis- like, how do we evaluate who qualifies for and gets all this money and he says quote we're not we don't have that capability was his quote number one and then number two he said additionally we shouldn't be using one-time funds to expand government we should use this money to correct a problem that we already have so like this is an example like i don't under i don't understand i mean i do but like somebody like representative calvi who or Commissioner Calvi, who throughout his tenure in the House expressed complete disdain for government and ranted on and on and on always about its incompetence. And when he termed out, he promptly went and got another job in government, <laughs> right? Rather than rather than go work in the private sector, which is like the end all be all of success, I guess, he turned around and got another job in local government, right? Paid a lot and, more than his old job too. Right. And now he says, like, we don't have the capability of this. Well, like, well, why the hell not, dude? Why don't you why don't you have this capability? Right. Well, and like this right. is like it's like that's like like if and, and again, this is like this is what happens when you put someone in government with a lot of power who doesn't believe that government should do anything. Right. Right. Like like you can figure out ways for the county to dole out this money, right? And then he says that rather than make a hard decision, like that would involve maybe raising taxes or finding revenue somewhere else, right? Rather than make a difficult decision to adequately fund the jail, he wants to use one-time money that comes from somewhere else so he doesn't have to deal with this problem, right? And says it's because we don't want to expand government. And by expand, and let me be clear, what he means by expand government is provide relief to businesses and nonprofits that are in danger closing forever because of the economic catastrophe that the virus has wrecked on our community. And, and it just... Like, I mean, you know, Commissioner Kerry Bloomer was like literally in tears yesterday in this meeting um, because this is I, I, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I believe she essentially called it theft. And I got to say, I have a really hard time disagreeing with that. Right. Um, I uh, I think just to reframe that. Um, if I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, I think Commissioner Calvi is saying like, I don't, well, I don't know. I don't know what he's saying by expand government. Like I get that's like a buzzword. Um, but, and it, it is smarter, right? If you've got one time money to spend it on a discrete expense, it's a one time expense. However, whether you're spending on the jail or you're spending on other relief to other people, it's still a one time expense, right? Like I, I think he's saying we shouldn't start a whole new program and have, you know, hire staff to do all these things. And, And, you know, as I've said on the podcast before, when you're working with federal grants and it is one-time funding, sometimes that is difficult. I don't, I haven't looked into it yet for the county to know if there's a deadline by which funds have to be spent and and all that. But regardless, like, I don't think out of the 
you know, 1.2 million people or whatever that live in and around Oklahoma County, that the best use of $40 million is for one building whose annual budget is only like $30 million, right? Like they basically doubled the budget and it's not like you're doing twice the work. And I, and I don't know if they can, if they're even allowed to spend it on, on things the jail needs, right? Like the jail needs capital improvements and all this stuff. They do need testing. Jail needs to be torn down and replaced is what the jail needs. Right. But that's a, but that's a billion dollars. Right. Which is like not possible. Right, it's not possible, but well, I mean, that's a whole other discussion whether it's possible or not. I well, mean, I mean, with this money, but, so I'm with this money, but but like, I guess it's just it's so aggravating to me, right? That the choice here is, you know, instead of giving, you know, instead of giving four hundred businesses a hundred thousand dollars each to maintain payroll. For another three months, right? And honestly, a hundred thousand might be generous. I don't, I don't know. But like, you know, instead of giving a local restaurant group a <clears throat> hundred or hundred and fifty thousand dollars to help them make payroll, instead of shutting down one of their stores, right? To <clears throat> to give a local theater money so they can maintain payroll mm-hmm. instead of closing their doors and and try to survive this. What he wants to do is just give all the money to the jail because it's easier. Right, because it's easier and it forestalls a more difficult decision for him down the road. Right, and because he doesn't think that government money should be used to help people. Like, let's call a spade a spade. Right, like what what Kevin Calvi means when he says we shouldn't be expanding government with one-time funds. I do not believe, if you put a true serum in Kevin Calvi, that he thinks government money is for helping people. Right. Like, I don't think that's what he thinks it's for. Um, like, maybe you can use it to build roads and bridges. You can probably use it to buy lots of tanks. Um, but that's that's about it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like to give an individual business government money is a handout that is interfering with the market, and that's not what government should do. Um, but these, But these are not market times. Well, well, Andy, you know that, and I know that, and I think any sane person knows that. Um, but like, I don't, I don't know what other explanation there is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I and don't, I don't think it's that he has a sudden, like, overwhelming concern for the welfare of the prisoners that are incarcerated at the Oklahoma County Jail. Right. I. I, don't I mean, know. do you <laughs> like? Do <you> like? <laughs> I'm not going to speak to Commissioner Calvi's intentions. I don't, you know, I don't know his intentions. I, all I can, I don't judge know him on is I've never, I've never met the man, but like, I'm just like, I'm spitballing based on like his entire record of public service. Right, right. <laughs> we can, we can make a educated guess, but I'm just going to say, intentions aside, the end result, like the decision, the part that we can objectively observe. I think it's a bad decision and it does it it calls into question government uh, handling of the pandemic which is something we've seen you know bungled at all levels right like congress part of congress went on recess and they still haven't figured out what to do about unemployment and just like it is so frustrating to me when leaders at any level right like government business whatever when leadership has the opportunity to do something, to do the right thing, and then they do the wrong thing. Especially when it's boneheaded, like unforced errors, right? Like there's a there's a great way to help people 
in a direct way. And I, for anyone who's an elected official who is choosing to not give people money when they need it, that is undoubtedly going to bite them when they run for re-election, right? So, I mean, you'd think it would, but I don't think it undoubtedly will. It's just super frustrating because this is money that could do so much to help so many people. You know, people that you know, people that I know, people that all of us know who took a risk, who've started, they've started restaurants, they've started, you know, I mean, they've started all kinds of businesses that that have been just devastated by this. And this could be a lifeline, you know, like maybe it's enough for them to keep their doors open. Maybe it's not, but like it could be enough for another two weeks or another month or another two months until they figure something out. And to say, no, we're not going to do that because big government, it's just a complete travesty to me and a failure of leadership. And it's bad for our city and just, it, it makes me it makes me really sad. Yeah, me too. All right, well, on that sad note. Sorry, Debbie Downer over here. What's, it's, I think, uh, Scott, I think this podcast reflects the mood of most of our listeners as well, that we're all stressed and anxious and we just don't have the answers. So, listeners, thank you for being here. And honestly, for our teacher friends out there, everyone's doing the best they can. I know that you are put in a impossible position. And that is unfair to you. And the truth is there's no great answers, right? Like it sucks for schools to open. It sucks for schools to stay closed. Whoever in your life that you can hug, if you've got somebody or an animal, give them a hug uh, and try to get through this weekend. And and we'll get back at it next week. We're all going to get through this. There will be a vaccine. It will come out. It will be produced and spread. And by this time next year, you know, fingers crossed, we'll be on the at least the tail end of this deal. Uh, and so, hold tight. You've done great for five months. We're here with you. We would love to keep being with you uh, in another five months. Someday we'll do another live podcast, and maybe we can even like have a group hug or something. How's that sound, Scott? That sounds delightful. I also, looked at, I, I looked at our PA system the other day, and I was like, man, that was really fun the one time we got to use this <laughs> before just, it all shut down. It's just, man, it's it is crazy. It is just absolutely insane. Do you remember, like, not to, like, I'm, I'm not saying this to be, like, partisan. It's just, like, illustrative. Do you remember when President Trump got impeached? That was six months ago. That's insane. Like, that's insane. It's been a busy year in you know, many, many, many ways. One of and, the things the 538 model is using this year in there that's different than what they've done before is, like, they're, it's more complicated than this, but they're factoring in news stories and like how much like big news there is that could like move the the needle on the polls. And the way that Nate was explaining it, he's like, you could think of it as like how many times a year does like the New York Times have the big bold type, you know, all the way across the top of the front page headline. He's like, normally, like in a typical year, you would expect that to happen, like once maybe twice he's like this year it's happened like 35 times yeah. <laughs> like it's just it's just insane yeah all right then well on that note thanks for listening have a great week let's pod this is produced by scott and me and bailey when she's here and we are a member of the mostly harmless media network our theme music is uh, artist so down song is called rhino funk you can follow us on social media at let's fix this okay scott is at sc melson i'm at andy okc 
you can shoot us an email podcast at let's fix this okay.org we'd love to hear from you send us a tweet facebook message or an email uh, about things you want to talk about talk more about thanks to those of you who have already chimed in and uh, we'll see you next week Oh, 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 oh,